squashed um, the fears that I had. They didn't go away. I just pushed them into the background. I let I I, I, I allowed them to exist without preventing them, you know, uh, preventing me from doing what I wanted to do. So I figured, just like everything else I had done in my life, that I would figure it out. I had the confidence that in time I would figure it out. And I would figure it out by doing it rather than, you know, picking up another book. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I had the pleasure of interviewing Angel Gambino. Angel Gambino is a wired top 100 executive who's built companies on three different continents. She's also an urban regeneration pioneer, a visionary investor, and a passionate environmental lawyer, and a dedicated loving mother. The technology phase of her career has included co-founding investment partnership Pre-Hype Partners, senior roles at BBC, MTV Networks, and leading the pioneering UK social media network, Bebo. Angel grew up in Detroit, and she recently returned to San Francisco as a co-founder and CEO of a social artificial intelligence startup called Sensei. Now, this episode is extremely fitting given that it's Women's Month, and Angel is definitely nothing short of an incredible entrepreneur, investor, and visionary. Her background should inspire you to take more risks, pursue your goals, and do whatever you feel passionate and compelled to do. Okay, let's get into the episode. So Angel, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So when you are out and about, Angel, how do you introduce yourself to people? Oh, that is uh, <laughs> that's a good question. So, um, you know, I, I try to be uh, as personal and personable as possible. So, uh, you know, I typically, you know, don't, um, you know, mention like, you know, what I do for a living unless, you know, I'm meeting in a professional context, in which case, you know, I say that I'm the founder and CEO of Sensei a um, social media marketing platform that utilizes artificial intelligence to help small businesses and creators and artists manage and optimize their social media. And I'm uh, also a partner at Prehype. And Prehype is a venture development firm that partners with big corporations to create entirely new digital startups. Uh, based on the disruption that they're facing, you know, in the marketplace, and a lot of the big corporates don't necessarily have the skill set or the culture um, to, you know, compete with some of these new entrants. Um, they need to focus on their core operational business. So we work alongside them to create entirely new subsidiaries, and we also have a number of different programs and initiatives um, to embed more entrepreneurial um, culture, uh, process, and initiatives uh, throughout the organization. And, you know, since we're a collective of, uh, you know, serial entrepreneurs, uh, we also create what we call homegrown. So 
uh, startups that, you know, that we create ourselves and then um, scale those up. So Sensei uh, was one of those businesses that we spun out. So it's now, you know, independent uh, and, uh, and growing very fast. So, yeah. So, <laughs> Um, and yeah, and Prehype yeah, is such yeah. a great company. I mean, you guys have rolled out some amazing companies, whether it's, it's Sensei or Roman or Managed by Q. Um, you guys have done some amazing projects that have scaled tremendously. Um, but we're going to get into that further into the show. Um, but sure. before we get into stuff at Prehype and Sensei, I want to start from the beginning. So you grew up in Detroit. So talk to me a little bit about early life in Detroit. I, you know, was born in the city and then, you know, we moved ar around a bit in terms of, you know, spreading out to, you know, the burbs because you know, at that stage and, and still today, you know, there are very few good schools in the city of Detroit because the city has struggled economically. Um, you know, so growing up there, it, you know, it's, you know, when we think about diversity and, you know, in tech, which is, you know, a hot topic here in Silicon Valley, you know, I come at it from a different perspective. You know, one, as a female, you know, I'm oftentimes the only woman in the room. But, you know, growing up in Detroit, I was also, you know, the minority and that I was white. It's, you know, a city that's, you know, over 87% African-American. And so I feel like that was a pretty incredible experience in terms of giving me a unique perspective on the world in terms of, really a lot of um, issues and opportunities that I feel like, you know, people that have kind of grown up in different kinds of bubbles maybe, you know, haven't quite experienced. So I feel really grateful for that experience and for the community that, you know, that I grew up in. And I think also because, you know, the city struggled for so long and now it's, you know, it's actually booming. Um, but, but being the kind of underdog gives you a lot of freedom in the mm. sense that, you know, you can kind of chart your own path and there's yeah. not a lot of, you know, not a lot of blocks in the way. So, so I felt like, you know, growing up there, pretty much anything was possible. And, you know, you just had to want it bad enough and you had to hustle. And I guess that's why they say to trust, you know, Detroit hustles harder. Um, yeah. yeah, and I guess what you're saying about, you know, being the underdog, it allows you to, to fail because no one's expecting you to win as yeah. well. Um, exactly. And that's that's the beautiful thing about being the underdog. So then, how did you get into? In fact, they expect you to fail. Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. Yeah, that's the only thing they do expect. They're like, oh yeah, that's that's supposed to happen. Um, so, where did the desire to get into law come from? Yeah, that's a really good question. So you know, I think there were a lot of different factors that went into it. You know, one, I thought that it was you know, a good academic credential to have no matter what I might want to do in the future. But a lot of it had to do with the fact that I'm very mission-driven. Yeah. And so I really saw a law degree and a career in law as an effective weapon or tool to create social change. And for me, there's so many issues that I'm really passionate about. Yeah. And I decided to kind of narrow in on uh, on the environment and water in particular because, you know, in Detroit, we are surrounded by 20% of the world's, um, you know, fresh water. So it's really focused on the Clean Water Act reauthorization. And I really saw a future where, you know, water as a natural resource would be something that wars would be waged over. And so... 
I wanted to do everything that I could, not just, you know, in the state of Michigan or in the city of Detroit, but, you know, throughout the world to be able to use, you know, a law degree and a law career to help create uh, communities that could rely on safe drinking water. So it's pretty ironic, you know, what happened in, in Flint. In yeah, Flint, that right? was I was literally just about to bring that up. So, I mean, that must have been that must have hit you guys really hard. Yeah, it was it was, in, you know, devastating in so many ways when you think, you know, at the bare minimum, we should be giving our kids clean drinking water. Right. You know, these are people who are hardworking people paying their bills. And they should, uh, you know, at least be able to expect that, you know, that their own, you know, government is protecting them from poison. So, you know, it's unfortunate in so many ways that I think there are lots of cities across the country and, and across the globe where the infrastructure and the bureaucracy are fundamentally broken. And so, you know, poor investment. You know, there's also just a lot of, you know, politicking. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, it's, it's got to a stage where, you know, where we just can't do it like that anymore. We have to fix it. We can't allow our children to be exposed to these toxins. It's just, it's just unacceptable. It sounds as though there's a, there's a bit of still um, a pull um, in your career to maybe come back to this, this side of your career. Yeah, I think it's always a deep part of me, you know, I mean, I look at people like, you know, Elon Musk, who just you know, made a significant contribution to help with the Flint water crisis. And I think that there are lots of different ways to to do your part in making the world better. Yeah. And, you know, for me, originally, I thought it was, you know, by being a lawyer and working on Capitol Hill and getting the right laws passed and then you know, suing the bad guys and, and sometimes the bad guys are the government. Yeah. And so it was, you know, it was a large part of my background, but I would say that there are lots of different ways, you know, either through financial donations and contributions to sitting on boards that, you know, help some of these, you know, governmental entities and nonprofits and businesses make better choices. Um, it's also about, you know, using things like the internet to make, you know, to help, you know, inform people so that they are aware of, you know, potential contagions and, and other issues. So I think there are a lot of different ways that, that we can do our part. You know, my dad and I delivered, you know, I don't even know, innumerable, you know, containers of, of water and, you know, real awesome. hands-on, you know, grassroots activism. Yeah. So I think that we all have to find what is the best way for us to personally contribute? And I think we all have a responsibility to, to do that. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I totally agree. Um, and so, so you spent a number of years working with government and within law, and then you kind of transitioned out of, I guess, the public sector, if you will, into more yeah. of a corporate role. And, and what yeah. was the, the catalyst for that? Yeah, so I was working on, you know, Capitol Hill, and I was working for a big nonprofit, and, you know, it was just, in, in so many ways, it felt so soul-destroying, because, you know, first of all, you were reading, you know, 800 pages, you know, worth of materials to look for one comma, and oh. the whole case was, like, you know, hanging on that comma. <laughs> that sounds like know, a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, it is, the needle in the haystack, and... 
you know, and then once you got a law passed, then you had to try to, you know, get it enforced. And, you know, and then once it was enforced, then, you know, then the other guys would come back and get the law changed. And you were always up against this, you know, moneyed interest. And so you, they were always outspending you in terms of yeah. public awareness campaigns. And so, you know, so I was playing volleyball once a week uh, in, when I was living in Capitol Hill. And I was playing with a bunch of rocket scientists from NASA, as you do. These guys are ultra competitive, by the way. You know, I've played, you know, soccer as a professional athlete. And let me just tell you, the rocket scientists are way more competitive. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we would, you know, we would have a beer after, uh, you know, after the matches. And, you know, one day we were having a pint and I was talking about how I was really, you know, uh, wanting to move more into internet-based um, uh, businesses. And, you know, at that stage, a lot of the nonprofits and, and business were not really even harnessing the, you know, the true capability of the internet. And so that was, you know, in the kind of late 90s. And um, so as I was talking, you know, one of the guys said, oh, well, you know, one of our financial advisors said, you know, NASA is, you know, setting up this new company um, as a kind of sister company in, uh, to this consultancy in New York. So, you know, maybe you should go meet with her and, and have a conversation about, you know, what kind of opportunities are out there. And, you know, when I was in law school before Capitol Hill, I had run a law conference called the uh, Public Interest Environmental Law Conference, which I think is still the largest of its time today. And uh, at that stage, I did the first um, webcast, the first, you know, electronic or online registration, the first online payment. And at that stage, there weren't software packages, you know, wow. easily accessible. And, and so we had to kind of build everything from scratch. And, you know, 4,000 people logged into, you know, to one stream at one point. And that, that was the real aha moment that, you know, that the Internet, you know, because there was no Google, you can search up, you know, the conference or, or anything like that. <laughs> uh, so I was still just amazed that they found it at all. But, um you know, so I think, you know, at that stage, I was thinking of all the different opportunities, you know, that, that might be available. But I knew I had a lot to learn. So, you know, I went out to New York for this informational, you know, interview, which was really just about, you know, for me to understand the market better. And, you know, and they were talking about how they had a bunch of, you know, direct marketing clients and they had a bunch of financial services clients. And so I said, oh, okay, well, then you've got this whole, you know, consultancy practice that you could build around e-commerce because it's basically, you know, CRM, you know, direct marketing yeah. and electronic payment systems, financial services, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so they said, well, we hadn't thought about that. And do you want to come build it for us? <laughs> wow. And, you know, I mean, that was, you know, over the course of, you know, several meetings beyond that, you know, that six-hour um, initial meeting. But, you know, and then we got to a stage where they said, well, you know, we absolutely agree with you in terms of the strategy. We should do this. But, you know, you're a lawyer and lawyers, you know, are, are really adverse to risk. <laughs> so, where, so yeah, so how did you, uh, this lawyer, which is obviously, you know, a very prestigious career, but, you know, lawyers don't really know anything about tech, right? Right. So yep. what kind of gave Although you the it's confidence? Changing. It's changing. Yeah, it is, it is. So what kind of gave you the confidence to pursue that and where did you even get these ideas to for for the strategy about how to implement these things yeah it's a good question i mean you know i definitely think you know when we were talking about like early days in detroit like you know it was a city that was perceived as you know as a failure or failing failing and so 
I think, I don't know, I feel like I've always had this innate confidence and I don't know where that comes from, you know, maybe, you know, knowing that my parents loved me helped, but we could get in a whole, like, you know, very deep conversation about that. Yeah, but, makes a difference, um, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that was definitely a different one. We're, we're going to need some expert help on that one. You know, but I think having that freedom to fail and and also understanding, I think, you know, when you grow up playing sports, you can you can fail, you can lose a match, right? But you can still, you know, win the entire tournament. So I, I feel like I, I wasn't, I was just, my curiosity exceeded my fear. And so my desire, my passion definitely uh, squashed um, the fears that I had. They didn't go away. I just pushed them into the background. I let, I, 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 I allowed them to exist without preventing them, you know, uh, preventing me from doing what I wanted to do. So I figured just like everything else I had done in my life that I would figure it out. I had the confidence that in time I would figure it out and I would figure it out by doing it rather than, you know, picking up another book because I had spent enough time. Yeah. <laughs> I get definitely reading, but, you know, through the JD and masters and undergrad and all that, I thought like, no, I'm going to learn by doing. So yeah, so I just thought, well, I'm going to try it, and and we'll see how it goes. And I trusted myself. One of the things that that I think a lot of Detroiters have in common is that we're very resourceful. Cause we kind of had to be. And so I figured if I didn't have the answers, I would find people who did, or I would find the answers, you know, in in some way, and I would find them as quickly as I could. So I just approached it as a kind of continuous, you know, learning. Um, and 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 I figured. If it didn't work out, then I always had law to fall back on. I could always, you know, spark that up again if I had to. Yeah. But that was a real incentive, right? Because <laughs> I definitely didn't want to do that. No, that's amazing. So then you went on to do a number of kind of commercial roles, uh, working in business development and strategy. So I just wanted to like dig a little deeper into, I guess, um, the business development role and the commercial role. So from a staff perspective, um, business development is so many things to so many different companies. So could yeah. for you, what is business development and how do you, or how does one go about becoming really effective at it? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I just gave a talk to the law students and the uh, business school at the University of Oregon where I went to law school. And, you know, one of the things that I had said to some of the lawyers who were in there who were saying, you know, I'm not quite sure if I want to be a lawyer, but I really like tech or I really like music or I really like, you know, business more generally. There are a lot of people who are interested in sports. And, and so I said, you know, one of the best ways for a lawyer to transition into business is to get into either legal and business affairs or business development. Because everything you learn about, you know, contracts and, you know, and negotiation really uh, is a, it's a great tool set to have going into business development. So, you know, so from my perspective, you know, business development can mean slightly different things at, at different, you know, organizations or at different size of organizations or sectors. But, you know, what I kind of uh, crystallize it into is, uh, is developing a strategy or an approach to the market um, that identifies 
opportunities for partnerships um, to help the business grow faster than it would organically, mm. you know, or through or through other channels. Right. So you know, so from a business development standpoint, you know, a lot of what I looked at was you know, who are the existing customers um, or the existing income, right? Where's the money coming into the business in order to make it a sustainable business or a profitable business or a huge business? And, you know, are there other ways to get to those prospective sources of income than, you know, than the kind of current way? Like individually? What's that? As opposed to doing it like direct to consumer, how can you ultimately get more people from the top of the funnel, right? Yes, exactly. And, you know, and a lot of times, you know, I've always really kind of focused on, uh, you know, more consumer-oriented businesses, even in the B2B2C uh, businesses, um, if we can still use that term. But <laughs> but uh, a lot of them, it's like, how do you get a large number of cohorts, you know, in, in one go? And so, you know, so even with consumer-oriented businesses, you can look at, you know, are there, um, are there different ways to get a large, you know, number. Some of some of it can fall into, you know, marketing activities like certain events or mm. promotions mm. or marketing or, you know, online customer acquisition. Sometimes it's, you know, establishing a partnership with a an existing company that is complementary in the sense that they have a a similar customer profile mm. um, but they're offering different services, right? So so a lot of times you can, you know, create value for their customers and, you know, and because it provides value for their customers and it doesn't directly compete, then a lot of times you can develop a, you know, some kind of a deal structure and a, a, either a one-off or an ongoing relationship with that other company in order to grow that customer base um, or that income overall. Can you give an example of like a great deal that you've done for one of the companies? I mean, I know you've, I mean, you've, you know, you've done some time at MTV, BBC. If, could you take an example from one of these, um, from one of your previous roles where you had a really successful outcome of a, a deal you've done? Sure. I think, um, luckily, there's a, there's a, a lot to pick from, but <laughs> thankfully. Um, I would say, you know, Probably, I guess from my perspective, one of the most interesting deals that I did were the first mobile distribution deals with um, uh, Viacom. And I would say those because, you know, at that stage, you know, there there was kind of a pendulum that was swinging within the telcos about whether they just wanted to be the pipe or whether they really wanted to be, you know, the, the kind of owner of the additional services you know, such as content services and apps and, and lots of other, you know, add-ons to, you know, to just the pure data. Yeah. Um, and so they would go back and forth between, you know, who they wanted to be in order to, you know, maximize uh, the, uh, the margins of, of their business. But, um, you know, I think one of the reasons um, that was a good one, it was, you know, so I did the first ever, you know, mobile deals that, um, that Viacom has ever done. And, uh, it was a good one in the sense that it covered multiple different territories. Um, so I think it was like 48 countries, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. Um, it also, you know, so you're dealing with a lot of different issues from, you know, from data to languages to rights to, you know, different types of customer use cases, you know, the whole thing. So, so it was, 
incredibly complex in a lot of ways, but but we you know simplified it in a way that worked in you know multiple territories. But I think it was also great because it was you know it was profitable on day one. So it created you know a commercial model that was beneficial to them, but it was you know so that they would promote it and make sure it was successful. But it was also you know profitable on, on day one as soon as you know, as soon as we signed the deal, it was profitable. So. I think that one was really good. I think a couple of other reasons why I really liked that one is because it it was a kind of first, you know, authorized, yes, you know, we can operate on these other platforms. We're not just a pure TV broadcaster onto TV screens. And that was, you know, that was a pivotal moment for the organization. You know, I mean, I had, you know, Philippe Dimon and, you know, and Judy McGrath and, you know, Preston and all these people on this call, you know, just to do this deal. And I basically had to say during that call, look, if it doesn't work, you guys can fire me. You can blame me. (laughs) You know, no one has to take the ball. (laughs) I'm like, I know this is going to work. And, you know, and it did. And it worked right away. And, you know, it was was really successful. And, And then I think the most important part of that deal is that it gave the rest of the organization permission to be more creative about who we were as a company and the mm. types of services and deals, you know, we didn't even think we were a service provider. Right. So, um, so it really kind of opened up the thinking a bit in terms of, you know, how we would operate and what kind of deals we would do. But, um, you know, a lot of times I think I use uh, startup examples because if you do one great deal on a startup, it can radically change the entire, you know, growth trajectory or outcome you know, of a business. You know, I did a deal with uh, Nokia when I was living down in Argentina with uh, Sonico. And Sonico was, you know, at the time they were calling it the Facebook of Latin America. And I was like, hey guys, you know, pretty soon Facebook is going to be the Facebook of Latin America. (laughs) You know, like we gotta, we gotta think about how to pivot the business. And so, you know, so I did that deal with Nokia really as a lead generation deal for them to enter into the market with uh, with new products because at that time Nokia was the number one handset in you know in all markets uh, yeah and that changed for you know, the United States yeah. <laughs> yeah. so yeah and that radically changed you know the yeah. the money that we got out of that deal meant that we didn't have to go raise finance from you know from investors so mm. so that was you know it was a landmark deal yeah Talk to me a bit about your role as the general manager at Castel. Yeah, so, um, you know, that was an interesting one, um, especially because essentially what I was doing is, you know, we, I had developed this uh, Alchemist Collective and, you know, which kind of segued into a lot of the pre-hype work. And so, you know, so with Castrol, they said, you know, okay, well, you can kind of come in and we can partner as in, you know, a partnership with, you know, with Alchemist Collective or with Prehype, you know, but we really want to embed you within the organization because we think that's the way, you know, you'll be most effective in terms of introducing new ventures into the business, new investment opportunities, you know, et cetera, all around smart mobility. So at the time, Castro was looking at the world and, you know, are still very much looking at the world in terms of, you know, hey, electric vehicles and all these other mobility options potentially mean much less need for lubricants and, you know, and petrol, right? Because BP is their, you know, their parent. And so they were looking at, okay, well, if people don't need lubricants anymore, what are we in the future? Or how do we offset 
any losses we might incur from those new mobility options with entirely new revenue streams that leverage our existing core competencies, you know, or our existing capabilities as, you know, as a brand, as an organization, and 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 create kind of yeah new income opportunities. So, um, you know, so that was that was a big challenge, right? So, you know, we had to look at, um, you know, what does Castro really have? Because you know, a lot of the time, you know, they didn't even have a, uh, they were losing that direct connection with the consumer because a lot of times, you know, they were selling. Uh, via um, independent workshops, or they were, you know, selling through chains, or they were selling through, you know, Walmart, you name it. Um, so a lot of it was looking at, you know, how do you take that deep domain expertise and uh, and create or buy or invest in um, startups that are in an adjacent space. So, you know, so at that time, I looked at a number of different investments, made some investments on their behalf. You know, Zuby was one. Um, it was a telematics-based business, and there are a handful of others. We developed some new um, businesses. One of them was uh, Karama, um, and that one essentially uh, was kind of like a, a log where you could, um, uh, you could find the best workshop, and this was in Asia, find the best workshop kind of on a very, you know, transparent and vetted um, uh, platform, and you could automatically enter, you know, a lot of information about your car and about the ownership. Now, there were a few different aspects that played into that. One, um, you got, you know, a lot of deals and offers that you wouldn't otherwise get. You were able to get a lot more transparency because at the time, the number one consumer um, complaint um, uh, in any sector was that people felt like when they took their car in to be serviced that they were being lied to, right? That they mm. were being told, oh, you have all these big problems. And because they weren't mechanics, they thought like, oh, well, I probably don't have those problems, but it sounds like I need to spend a few thousand dollars. So that, you know, that business and other businesses like that, we had a uh, repair pal based in California. Um, you know, we, we did basically a handful of investments into existing startups. We um, experimented building um, adjacent businesses, you know, um, utilizing existing staff and recruiting um, staff from the market for those businesses. Um, and then we started to really just implement, you know, programs internally um, to help encourage further product development and uh, more kind of an entrepreneurial approach to um, to the overall business so that we could identify new opportunities in, in the market. But, um, oh, so, uh, you know, you were asking about business development. A lot of new partnerships came out of that as well, with wow. uh, specifically with smart mobility startups. Awesome. So I want to switch gears a little bit now um, and talk about startups. So throughout your career, post you know being a lawyer, starting businesses, incubating businesses, telling businesses what they should be doing is kind of being your bread and butter. So what is or what other steps that goes into creating a a good startup? Um, so you've got this idea, and typically, let's say you've got you know. In most cases, you've had a lot of resources, right? So assume yeah. someone's got, you know, a set amount of resources. 
what what should they do? Yeah, I think, you know, it depends on what stage you're at, but I think really understanding the problem is, you know, a lot of times we jump straight to the solution. And I think that, you know, you can even look at, you know, personal life. Like a lot of times, you know, the problem that you have, like peel back the layers and you figure out, oh, that's actually not the core. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, you know, if you've got a good idea, you know, usually it should be about, you know, identifying an opportunity related to, you know, it doesn't always have to be solving a problem, but, you know, but when you have that problem, you have to kind of reframe it multiple, multiple, multiple times mm. to make sure you're really getting to the biggest pain point, you know, because there's lots of lifestyle businesses that, that you can develop that, you know, support a healthy income. But if you want to think big and grow a really big company, then you've got to get to a pain point that, you know, that a lot of people have, that it's a big problem, that, that they want to do something to solve that problem. So I would say part of it is, you know, not jumping to the solution or the brand and all the fun stuff mm. <laughs> in terms of <laughs> yeah. you know, growing, growing your startup. We all like to, you know, argue about the, the brand or the colors or the design or the fonts and, you know, and really need to make sure you've got a business before you, you know, do a lot of that. But um, so I would say, you know, really honing in on what the, what the problem is and then looking at a variety of solutions, but testing some of those solutions, right? So, you know, so there's a lot of, you know, basic A-B testing you can do. There's a lot of online um, things that you can do in terms of setting up, you know, a page, seeing how many people you can attract, you know, and, but doing it kind of in the full context, like this is the brand, you know, this is the target audience, uh, this is the marketing message, and then spending a little bit of money, but not too much money, you know, trying to attract people and seeing if you can get them to buy at that particular price point. And the reason I say buy is, you know, there's lots of different business models out there, but I think, you know, people giving you their credit card is an ultimate form of validation, a problem that people are worth paying for to yeah. solve. Yeah. So, you know, so I would say, you know, really think about just the the variety of ways that you can test the validity of your hypothesis around your solution and just, you know, keep testing, keep testing, keep testing and, you know, see what results, you know, look the best. And then, you know, I mean, Eric Reese and a lot of these guys have, you know, have expanded on initial, you know, lean product planning processes and, you know, and how you develop a minimum viable product. But I do think it's about, building small and building up traction around that kind of core component, you know, the, the component that's ultimately, you know, the most important part that can be built on, right? So you right. don't go for the grand vision of, you know, of what you're trying to get to and, you know, in five years, you know, you start small, you get um, traction and it's really the customers and the partners, right, in the market that are going to give you the feedback that you need that helps you to prioritize yeah. um, all the different ways that you can grow that business. Yeah. But I think, you know, a lot of it is just live experimentation and doing it in a very frugal way so you don't burn through too much money and then building on the successes that you have and adapting to, you know, to whatever criticisms or, you know, uh, or lack of traction that you're getting. And when you, I mean, I just want to take a few steps back. Um, you mentioned, you know, Eric Reese and the Lean Startup. So does that mean you, you don't subscribe to that whole methodology or you do, but in a different format? 
Yeah, I no, I definitely do. But I think, you know, uh, I saw him in October, I think it was. And, you know, and he was talking about all the different ways that, he, you know, if you, you know, if you read, uh, you know, his book, I mean, any one of those chapters could be a whole book, right? Well, yeah. So I think, you know, a lot, I, I definitely subscribe to the, the methodology, but I think there's a lot more depth and breadth than, you know, in those kind of basic principles. And, you know, once you've done a few startups, you know, then then you start to see the different ways that, you know, that different types of startups can evolve and grow. Yeah. So then in terms of, you know, before you mentioned before that you had done some early stage investments as well. Can you think of a company that you've invested in and why did you invest? Uh, most recent um, investment last year that I made was Ease. And, you know, Ease is a cannabis delivery um, system. And so, you know, with that one, um, there are a lot of reasons why it wouldn't be a smart investment in the sense that, you know, cannabis is not, you know, uh, federally legal. There are lots of, you know, banking issues. There's lots of friction points. So whenever there's a lot of friction points, you increase your risk. Yeah. So, you know, but, um, you know, I also saw a lot of the existing delivery companies, whether those are, you know, uh, you know, potentially even Amazon or, or any of the food delivery companies as really big competitive threats. Um, but there were also a lot of reasons why I thought it was, you know, uh, a good one and why I'm happy with that investment. You know, one is because I see it as a very rapidly growing, huge market. You know, even if they only stayed in California where they're at now and didn't expand into other states, um, it's still an incredibly huge market. So um, even if they take a small slice of that market, you know, that's a huge, huge, huge cash business. Um, it's, you know, part of the reason uh, I invested is I thought that the, you know, the early stage traction that they were getting was fantastic. Uh, I thought they had a good team. Uh, I liked the terms, um, you know, of the investment. And it was also, you know, a category that I wanted to learn more about. So, you know, so getting the insights from that business helps inform other potential investments that I might want to make or other things that I might want to build. Yeah. So I think, you know, there are a lot of different reasons I feel like to invest. Sometimes you just invest because there are other people that you want to be connected to mm. on an you know, ongoing basis. So, yeah, so the, yeah, there are lots of different ones, but I'm happy about that one. You know, I've only had a couple that have gone south, so I've either played my bets right or I've been lucky. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, but it's important to, you know, to, uh, you know, everyone in Silicon Valley, I feel like, you know, likes to talk about how failure is good and, you know, failure is never feels good. It's never. never. It like as not, an yeah. investor, as a founder, it never feels good. But it is super important. So I would say I'm a little more cautious with investments than I am with the stuff that I'm building because I have more direct control over it. Mm. Um, and, yeah, and I look at the other investors, right? Um, I look at whether I think they've got, you know, smart money or if they've just, you know, got cash in from any source possible. And if there's a lot of smart money, in other words, you know, other angel investors that, that I really respect or that I've co-invested with, you know, before, you know, Fabrice Grinda, you know, and FJ Labs I've invested with before uh, in different businesses. And, you know, and I think, yeah, he was just 
created by Forbes or Fortune or one of those, you know, publications as yeah. you know, as the you know the top investor, yeah, you know, in North America. And so I think you know there are certain investors that that I feel more comfortable invest, investing alongside. Awesome. And so with Prehype, so you guys are you partner with corporations and you incubate some of your own startups, and that's ultimately where Correct. Sensei came out of, right? Mm-hmm. So yep. talk to me about Sensei. Yep. How did the idea for Sensei come about uh, and how did you guys start it? Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, it's funny because with a lot of these businesses, um, you know, there are, you know, so many of us that have worked in a variety of different sectors. So, uh, you know, whether it's with our own startups or, you know, or other projects or whatever. And so we bring a lot of different ideas and then, you know, then we focus in on, you know, uh, adding to the knowledge base, you know, with, with other experts. But, um, but really it came from, you know, I bought up all this, you know, property in Detroit after I'd had, uh, uh, one of my, you know, uh, better exits. And so, um, you know, so I was buying up all this, you know, property in an area called Corktown and some other areas. And everyone at the time told me I was nuts because it was when Detroit hit an all time low. This was mm. right before the bankruptcy. And, uh, you know, and I just believed in the city and I believed it would come back. And so, you know, so I bought this, um, these, you know, I mean, we're talking, you know, several acres of, you know, next to the downtown area. And wow. so some of those, uh, buildings I restored and I, you know, recruited, uh, a bunch of tenants. So a lot of them were mission driven organizations, you know, that were focused on issues that, you know, that I really care about. And then, you know, it was a lot of other, um, uh, 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 really companies, early stage companies or small companies that, uh, where I felt like I could make an impact above and beyond being a landlord. And so a lot of those were more, you know, music or creative based, uh, companies. And so, you know, across the board though, what, what the, you know, a lot of the conversations that I was having, whether it was with the nonprofits or whether it was with the small business owners was, you know, social media is our only or primary marketing channel, our best way to, you know, uh, to fundraise if we're a nonprofit or to get new customers if we're a small business. Mm. And all the effort we've been putting in, you know, we're just, we can't tell if we're getting return on investment. And we're putting a lot more effort in in terms of our content marketing across all of these platforms. All these platforms keep changing all their algorithms, and so every time <laughs> we start to get any kind of growth, then all of a sudden, you know, we either plateau or we decline, and we're doing all the same things we were doing before, right. you know, or we've been, you know, we've been doing even better, and our performance is getting worse. Wow. So, you know, so if that's your lifeblood, right, to get, you know, awareness, if you're, you know, your mission-driven organization or fundraising, you know, if, if that's where you get a lot of your, you know, donations from you know, or a small business, that that's the primary way that people are learning about your business and buying from you. And you're seeing massive decline um, in terms of, you know, everything from, you know, followers through to engagement through to actual, you know, transactions, then it's a real problem. There's a direct impact. So, you know, so when I was getting a lot of that, you know, I was trying to help them based on, you know, my experience and, and, you know, and also making introductions to them so that they could, you know, get the right kind of access to information. And, you know, and a lot of times when I was having a conversation with my friends that were at, you know, Facebook and Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, 
you know, a lot of them were saying, Angel, honestly, like sometimes we uh, we really don't even know what's going on. So, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, at least it's honest. Yeah. Um, you know, so, uh, so what became clear is that, you know, that these types of businesses, which I really care a lot about, because especially in places like Detroit, but also across the, you know, the entire United States and then a lot of other economies, um, you know, we are really dependent on small businesses being successful. So, uh, you know, the entire economy. And so, so for me, I thought, okay, definitely me, definitely it's a big problem. And I'm hearing it from my tenants. And so let's expand on that, right? And that was everything from, you know, I, I'm an advisor to something called Assemble Sound, which is in Detroit, which is an artist development um, uh, group and uh, think business. And so a lot of the artists, you know, that were coming out of there, like uh, Tune Day and Flynn Eastwood and Sam Austin, they were all experiencing, you know, the same thing. And so I thought, like, okay, how do I help my people? Yeah. <laughs> my community? Yeah. And then is this a big enough problem globally that you could really build a business out of that? And so really we used the, the pre-hype um, process and a lot of what we call signal mining and uh you know, a methodology that really helped us to identify what could be the business. And part of what we figured out during that process is, you know, you would either need to hire thousands of people working nonstop, you know, to be able to do some really basic analysis Mm -hmm. of, you know, of predictive analytics and the rest of it to determine what was happening on these social platforms in order to help, you know, all these small businesses and nonprofits and artists, you know, be better on social media. Or you could build artificial intelligence and machine learning so that the machines were communicating and understanding the, you know, the operations of the other machines, right? Yeah. And so, so a lot of what we wanted to be able to do was basically create almost like a super powerhouse, amazing agency without all of that overhead and yeah. a much higher level of sophistication. Yeah, that's and good. And so that meant we really needed AI and machine learning. And, you know, so far, for example, a social media manager might manage three to five accounts, depending on how big those accounts are. Yeah. And our social media managers within Sensei are managing 10,000 each. Wow. And the only way that they can do that, you know, the only way that that's possible is by getting the insights and having, you know, the artificial intelligence um, do a lot of the grunt work, you know, the part of their job that they didn't really like that much yeah. you know, before, and uh, to be able to, uh, you know, create the, you know, what to post, when to post, how to post, who to tag, you know, what to tag, which geolocation, you know, you name it, the actual words themselves, almost like SEO, mm. you know, uh, AI is providing a lot of that to them so that a lot of those posts are are created and then you can take the human human element and create you know augmented intelligence by combining you know humans and machines yeah i mean this is such a huge problem and i think historically a lot of companies have tried to solve this but using just various tools that still requires a lot of human interaction and human labor so how how did you like what was the first thing that you guys done you know, well, I think, you know, we, you know, we built uh, the app in both iPhone and Android. You know, a lot of um, startups will focus on just iPhone for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I'm a Pixel 2 user, so oh, wow. definitely, you know, I've got my iPhone too, but I prefer Pixel 2. So, you know, so we, um, you know, but we also tested and we found that, that you know, the, um, the 
that taking just iPhones was actually limiting us in terms of the overall customer base. And then we moved to desktop because a lot of, you know, uh, social media managers and a lot of people like to schedule out and manage their assets on desktop as, as opposed to phone. So, you know, so we basically made Sensei available on iPhone, Android, and desktop. And uh, we have got wisdom, which are basically the insights and the recommendations, which are, you know, pulled from the AI. And then we have a um, team of strategists on top of that. So making recommendations about, you know, what to post, when to post, how to post, um, based on your goals. Like, you know, if you're a yoga student owner, your goals are going to be different than, you know, Tim McGraw, who's, you know, one of our customers. You know, if you're... You know, barletics, which, you know, create these awesome grippy sandals for, you know, for bar, for water sports, for yoga, you know, what you're going to need to be posting, you know, uh, especially, you know, when you're a Detroit-based company and you want to build up, you know, a local brand and build from that, um, you know, is very, very different than, for example, Surfrider Foundation, which is, you know, another one of our customers. So, Really, we started to leverage a lot of my relationships in music and entertainment. Mm. And, you know, we got, um, you know, so really, you know, helping that. Because the thing is, you know, for example, you know, one of the issues that we, you know, that we uncovered when we were talking with artist managers, you know, both in the U.S. and the U.K., is they said, like, look, with some of our artists, we have millions and millions of followers, but we do not know how to activate them. You know, like we can post and we can post, but like we don't know how to actually, you know, say like, okay, well, the tour is here and, you know, like the tickets are going on sale. They said, but we don't know, like a lot of the tickets are being purchased elsewhere, you know. So a lot of it with some of the like AAA talent was really more about not how do you get additional followers or how do you get more comments. But how do you convert that into ROI? Like, how do you convert that into ticket sales? How do you convert that into more streams on, you know, on Spotify or Apple Music or, you know, or, or you know, any one of the services, any one of the, you know, DSPs that are out there? Um, you know, a lot of them still don't know the answers to that. So, you know, so they were coming onto the platform. So it was great to have like Miranda Lambert and you know, a, a lot of these big, you know, Jason Aldean, a lot of these big artists across, you know, multiple different genres come on because, they, in effect, they're basically small businesses themselves, right, yeah. you know, as, as individual entities. And then, you know, we got Sean White and, you know, we started to get a lot of professional athletes, you know, who are launching their own, you know, their own fashion lines. They're launching a lot of different, you know, not just as endorsements, but their own businesses. So, you know, so we started off there, And that was really helping us, you know, understand um, some of the challenges that they have with social media and different ways that we could go about solving it. And it's still still very early. You know, we we haven't even yet come out of beta, but, you know, we already have over 30,000 customers. Wow. So, you know, so it's a good good validation point, right? Um, And then, you know, we started to look at how do we create different price points? Because what we found is that there were a lot of influencers that, you know, that were downloading the app and, you know, and using it. And, you know, what we found is across the board, you know, anyone who was using Sensei on, you know, on a very active basis, so, you know, so if they were using it every day or using it, you know, once a week, 
um, they were getting a 200% uplift on, you know, it was actually 198% to be precise, but uh, <laughs> uplift on all of their social media growth. So, you know, so for us, that was another, you know, signal that, okay, we're doing something right here. Now we still have a lot to do. It's still very, very early days. Yeah. Like I'm a perfectionist at heart. And so I'm constantly thinking about, you know, how we need to improve the UX or how we need to improve, you know, different things. But when we introduced this different pricing, um, you know, which uh, basically we have the free tier, the free tier, you know, opens up, you know, the funnel, the sales funnel, but it also open, opens up, you know, access to more data. Um, but basically customers will, you know, come um, to Sensei, they'll download the app, um, then they will connect their socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So they can manage all of them from one spot. They can, you know, get these insights, we call them wisdom, they're sent, you know, via these cards, so, you know, specific recommendations across each of the platforms based on, you know, your objectives. Um, you can um, uh, look at creating or, or just start creating um, draft posts, you know, yeah. based on those recommendations. You can schedule those posts, it, you can do it sensei time, which is basically, uh, you know, using the AI to determine, you um, from predictive analytics standpoint, when it's going, when that particular individual post is going to be best, so not just some general best practice Tuesdays at six or the best time to post. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, you, you always hear a new one. Um, and then, um, you know, apart from uh, those drafts, you can start to manage a lot of you know of your um, media assets. So, um, right, so you guys have done a yeah. lot. Since um since yeah, I guess we've, inception, we've done a whole lot. um and and how you said you have thirty thousand customers, which is incredible for a private well a beta app. How are how yeah. are people hearing about you? How are you getting the word out? Um, it's primarily been word of mouth and through you know through the re relationships that I've got that I've leveraged you know with artist management groups, record labels, business um, business development, businesses. <laughs> yeah, business development. Business exactly. development. There you go. Yeah, yeah. No, it works. <laughs> it really works. Wow. <laughs> Um, yeah. so have you guys, did you bootstrap? You name it. Yeah. Have you guys, did you bootstrap or did you raise some money for this? Uh, we did both. Okay. Awesome. So I want to work towards wrapping up now. Um, and just take some, I guess, some kind of generalist advice for startups, right? So in yep. the beginning, let's say, I know we spoke a little bit earlier about companies that do have resources, but what should companies do that don't have resources when they're starting out? Yeah, so I think a lot of times, you know, if you can, if you've got a problem that other people also want to solve, a lot of times you can find really talented people who will work for free for mm -hmm. a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they might want share options, but that's almost meaningless at the beginning. So you can, you know, you can set up a framework or even a, a basic kind of, you know, offer letter. Um, where it makes clear that there is, you know, a value exchange. They're providing services, and 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 share options will be issued at some stage. Um, but you know, but I, uh, you know, I encourage people as much as possible to tap into, um, you know, to to other people that want to solve that problem. You know, other people who are passionate about it and and who have the skill sets that you need and have some extra capacity themselves. Yeah. So, you know, so either they're doing it as their side gig, you know, or some people, you know, can do it as a full-time gig for a certain amount of time. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times I would say tapping into, you know, highly qualified and experienced students is another great way. Yeah. So giving them kind of the work experience 
is great for them. And, you know, again, as long as it's, you know, a skill set that you really need, you know, tapping into, you know, to um, students is a, is a great way to do it. Yeah. You do that, you know, sometimes through, you know, career placement offices, you know, you can do that through your own personal network, just telling people this is what you're looking for. You can post those jobs. And, you know, a lot of students are eager to get work experience. And, you know, and, you know, for example, I was at this Founders uh, Invitation Only event, one of these, you know, uh, it was in Carmel. It was very she-she. It was very nice. But, like, you know, you've got these people who have, you know, who are, you know, multi-multi-millionaires. And, you know, but they, every time they start a new business, they started up, you know, in a very, very scrappy way. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of these guys were using, you know, developers and designers and, you know, all sorts of people, data scientists, you know, who are making 25 bucks an hour. So, so you do, you know, oftentimes need to have some capital, um, you know, to be able to pay people to build um, if you can't find, you know, that skill set that, that you really need and are willing to work for free for a certain period. Right. No, I totally agree. I mean, even now we have a we have an engineer who's in his fourth year doing computer science. Um, and he's incredible. Yeah. He's built so many. So, I, you know, we really got lucky with, with him. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> Awesome. So I want to work towards wrapping up now. I just want to ask you some rapid fire questions. So what has or who has been your biggest inspiration today? Ooh, wow. That is a good question. Inspiration. You know, I like I hate to use any individual because I think that uh, they're, you know, humans are complex and we all have so many great things about us and we all, you know, as humans are fundamentally flawed as well. And so I mm. think I like to think of like learning or inspirational moments. Yeah. You know, and I feel like there have been plenty throughout my career. You know, I, I feel like, you know, when I search for Justice Patricia J. Boyle at the Michigan Supreme Court, mm. you know, I was really inspired by her because, you know, she was just a intellectual powerhouse this amazing woman and you know and she was really humble and you know and I thought you know wow she is really deciding the fate of justice itself yeah. in the state yeah. of Michigan and so I think I was you know uh, but I like um a lot of the ways about how she she really went about her work you know she was she was kind she was professional she you know, she was good at her job. And so, you know, so there have definitely been, you know, people like that um, I feel like I've met throughout my life. But, you know, but I also think of, you know, different learning moments, you know, in my life. You know, I had a relationship with a, uh, like, um, a teacher in high school where, you know, we just did not get along, you know. Yeah. I in a AP English class. And, you know, I just, yeah, we just, it was a very tense relationship, let's put it that way. <laughs> um, but one day during class, you know, he, I refused to turn in an assignment because I knew it was a B paper and I, I, I wasn't happy with it. And so I refused to submit it because I just wasn't happy with it. Mm. And he said, well, it's better to get the B than it is to fail. And 
I said I disagreed, you know, and I was a little immature at that stage <laughs> and too much of a perfectionist. I've definitely given up that part. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, but in terms of inspirational moments and, and part, maybe part of the reason that I have this like comfort with, you know, with failure, at least a willingness to embrace it. You know, he sent me this note in a class and it was, uh, it was, I don't know if he like ripped it out of a newspaper or what, but it was in this kind of tight space. It looks like it was from a newspaper, but, mm. um, and so he like, kind of like kids pass notes in class. Like he didn't come over to my desk. He passed it to a student, he passed it to a student, he passed it to a student, and he got to me. Yeah. And it was folded so they didn't see it. But then I opened it up and it said, nothing is sacrosanct. And it's, so, it says what, sorry? Nothing is sacrosanct. You know, mm. nothing is perfect. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and he did that to encourage me to submit the paper. And to be honest, I don't even remember if I ended up submitting or not. I probably didn't. But Let's just say you did for the for dramatic effect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. At that moment, life changed. Yeah. <laughs> I found the error of my way. But I did remember that. I remember that moment. And so this person that I didn't even, you know, like care for compared to some of my other teachers, had a very lasting effect. I mean, I'm telling you the story right now in terms of, you know, inspiration. Mm. So, you know, so I think as an entrepreneur, especially, um, you know, nothing is sacrosanct. Like there, like you have to be willing to take your, you know, your ego out of it, which is hard sometimes, especially as a founder, because a lot of times what you're selling is you're selling yourself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yet you have to take your ego out of it because otherwise it's, you know, you, it could be... You're you going to get hurt. Your ego's going to get hurt. Yeah, very hurt. Yeah. Because you're vulnerable, right? You're yeah. vulnerable when you're going to pitch your ideas. Yeah, very. But yeah, so I think there there are so many people out there that, you know, that are inspiring in so many different ways, whether it's in, you know, it's in sports or, or, or even there are some, you know, worldwide leaders who, you know, who... There are a few left that are that are inspiring, and you know, and in business, and I just try to look for moments that you know that inspire me. But you know, maybe ultimately, as a mom, you know, my son Bronco is probably you know the most inspirational person to me because mm. you know every conversation we have and just seeing how you know his life is unfolding. You know, I consider everything I do to be in large part motivated by either being a good example to him, you know, and or creating, you know, a, a safety net for him so that when, you know, he wants to go be an entrepreneur or an artist or whatever, that, you know, he doesn't have to go through a lot of the same struggles that I did, although... I'm not going to tell him that. I'm not going to tell him those Yeah. That's good. Don't let him know. Don't let him hear this episode when he can listen to things properly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, and your favorite podcast? Other than this one, of course. Yours. Yours. Totally yours. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, favorite blog post? Right. You know, uh, on Instagram. Yeah. Um, it has nothing to do with, you know, with business or anything. I love Henry the Colorado Dog. What? It's I... Like, it's, yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> so Henry the Colorado Dog is like, he is this dog and his cat companion. Wow. And it's this couple who, like, 
hike and camp and go all over the like all over the place with this cat and dog. And I'm telling you, if you haven't checked it out, you have to. It is like whenever I get really stressed, I look at Henry the Colorado Dog on Instagram. And I just immediately, like, have this big sigh, and I think, oh, the world is right. Well, the he- so Henry the Colorado Dog? Yes. Okay, uh-huh. that's your favorite blog. I mean, the next question was going to be, what's yep. your favorite IG account? But you just told me. Okay, yeah. so favorite book? Ooh, dang. Oh, my God. Let's see, favorite book. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I have one. It used to be... Uh, the, well, my two favorites used to be uh, Animal Liberation and uh, Diet for a New America. But maybe recently I started reading Sapiens, so I can't say it's you know it's my favorite book yet. <laughs> you haven't finished. It, so. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. What do you wish you could do that you currently can't do? Uh, well, like Henrik, I'm constantly focused on transforming my body. <laughs> right. I wish I wish I could dedicate more. I wish I would allow myself to dedicate more time for preparing healthy meals and uh, and getting to the gym because I've always been an athlete and I love to be physically active and I love to eat really healthy. Um, you know, but the reality is, is, you know, when you're running your business and you're and you're a parent, you know, and you want to have some resemblance of a social life, you know, <laughs> I, I sometimes don't prioritize that as much as as much as I should that's fair I'd like to do that better what advice would you give to your 21 year old self I really love the way that I think my life has has unfolded to date so I don't think that I would necessarily do anything differently so maybe the advice would just be keep going you're doing a great job and uh and love yourself and you have a lot to give that's good. I mean, listen, that's that's good advice. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> probably the same. It's probably the same advice I give to just about almost anyone. <laughs> yeah. If you had a hundred dollars in your favorite city, what would you spend it on? Ooh. Yeah, almost always music or food. Okay, that's cool. What's the one? I like a live show. What's the one thing that startups should ignore in the early days? Uh, negative self-talk. You know, it's not going to work, or I'm not smart enough, or I can't do this, you know. Um, Yeah, and I wouldn't necessarily say ignore it. I would just say embrace it and let it go, Mm. and then focus on the stuff that is working and focus on building yourself up, building your confidence up to take the risk and know that, you know, that you are going to fail, um, and you'll fail in lots of different ways, but failure is an important part of the journey to big success. Yeah. And what's the vision you have for Sensei? Ooh, you know, I, for me, you know, I would love to be able to help a little guy. I would love to be able to help small businesses compete more effectively, you know, with a very crowded, you know, social media landscape, you know, that has lots of big money in it now and you know and with all the social platforms trying to you know make as much money as they can it's you know getting increasingly harder as they monetize so I would love to see more of that where I'm making an impact with mission-driven organizations and small business and helping them because you know small business owners you know it's like if they're more successful that means 
you know, more dance classes for their daughters or, you know, there's a real direct impact in terms of people's lives. Yeah. Um, or at least a more transparent one. And then, uh, but I would say the, the bigger vision beyond that is that I would love for us to continue to develop artificial intelligence to be able to help increase empathetic engagement on social media. So being able to weed out fake news, to be able to weed out bullying, and to um, really encourage the use of words that trigger empathy and more positive interactions um, in social media. That's a good vision. Angel, thank you so much for coming on the show. If people want to get yeah, in contact, if people want to get in contact with you, where can they find you? Sure. Yeah. So they can find me at getsensei.com, which is G-E-T-S-E-N-S-A-I.com, um, or on LinkedIn. I'm just under Angel Gambino. And I'm also on Twitter, at Gambino, and Instagram, at Angel Gambino. And I use my Facebook for friends and family. So, uh, so. Don't contact her, guys, on Facebook. You will get rejected. <laughs> Yes, and, and inundated with, like, you know, photos of my cat. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you, too. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Angel for coming on the show and to her team for making it happen. Be sure to check out Sensei if you're an entrepreneur or a small business owner. This product is great. I hope Angel has got you thinking about how you can hustle and get your idea off the ground with minimal resources. Like she said, find a student, find freelancers, wherever it takes to make it happen. Because after all, the alternative is staying exactly where you are. And nobody wants that. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave us a review on the Apple Podcasting app. They honestly do go a long way. You can also listen to us on Spotify, Anchor, and everywhere else you listen to your favorite podcasts. Until next time, guys, keep grinding.